Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 14, 14th chapter of 2 Samuel. And let's ask the Lord to bless the preaching of his word. And he might give us ears to hear. It's so easy to be distracted in these times, but we want to steward this opportunity that we have. It's something entrusted to us. It, we don't own this time. It, it, it's, steward, it's entrusted to us. And so let's pray that God would give us ears to hear and steward our time. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you that we can say in Jesus Christ definitively, it is well with my soul. As the Apostle Paul writes, if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. And you are for us in your son Jesus. And Lord, we pray that we could understand that even better, even in a text like 2 Samuel 14. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 18th century theologian and, and pastor Jonathan Edwards and his wife, Sarah, very godly couple, they had 11 children, which means our family would be considered small. But every night, he would spend an hour with his children, speaking to them the things of God, the gospel and its gospel implications. And then, before they went to bed, he would pray over each of his 11 children individually. He would pray over them. His commitment was to pass on a legacy. That would endure. 150 years after his death, educator A.E. Winship traced the descendants of Jonathan Edwards, just 150 years after he had died, and his findings are remarkable, especially when compared to another man who lived at the same time as Edwards, a man named Max Jukes. Well, Jonathan Edwards' legacy includes one U.S. vice president, one dean of a law school, one dean of a medical school, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 60 doctors, physicians, 65 professors, 75 military officers, 80 public office holders, a hundred lawyers, a hundred preachers, and 285 college graduates in 150 years. Max Duke's legacy, on the other hand, came to the people's attention when the family trees of 42 criminals, prisoners, in the New York prison system was traced back to him. So Duke's family was studied by sociologist Richard Dugdale in 1877. And his descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 190 prostitutes, 150 convicts, 310 paupers, and 300 or 440 alcoholics. 
So these contrasting legacies provide an example of what has been called the five-generation rule. How a, a parent, how parents raise a child influences not only the child, but the four generations to follow. Now, there are obvious exceptions to that. For instance, most families are not as ungodly as the family of Max Jukes, nor are most families as successful as the family of Jonathan Edwards. And that's not even to say that Jonathan Edwards' descendants were godly or that they were Christians. Moreover, there are godly parents who have wayward children. You see that even in the Bible. Godly kings who have ungodly sons. And vice versa, there are wayward parents who have godly children. You see that in the Bible. Ungodly kings who have godly sons. But it's a general truism. As the parents go, so go the kids. It's hard to disagree with that when what you see going on in our culture and so many single-parent homes in the culture. And on Father's Day, let's just get more particular, as the spiritual leaders of the home go, as the dads go, the impact on the children is astronomical, for good or for ill. Well, David's family is in chaos at this point, utter chaos. And the inference is that we're to read between the lines if David had been more involved as a dad. Instead of spending all of his time at the office as king, if he had been more involved as a dad, he could have prevented much of the evil that we have read about in previous chapters. You know, the greatest temptation that believing dad's face is not apostasy. Now, apostasy is something that we're to be warned about and we're to be very careful. Apostasy can happen. Not that you can lose your salvation, but apostasy happens. But I don't think that's the greatest danger for believing fathers. Apostasy is not the bigger issue with believing fathers. It's apathy. That's far more of an offense, I think, in believing homes. Men who are more informed about everything else than they are their own children. And David's parental apathy, we've, seen, we've not seen any investment in his sons. Had there been investment in his sons, we would have read about it. That's how important the scripture speaks about these issues. But we've seen complete apathy, and it has been costly. We saw it last time. Amnon rapes his half-sister. 
And because there was no justice with Amnon, his other son, well, there were more than two sons, but Absalom, who was the half-brother of Amnon, has vindicated Tamar's situation. And now we notice at the end of chapter 13 last week, we read this in verse 38. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur. He's in exile. And he was there three years. And now Joab, who is the nephew of David and his right-hand man, he wants to do something about it. And the first thing we see, though, is he does it in a crafty way. We see in verses 1 to 20... Joab's craftiness. Notice with me in verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. He loved his son, but he's bitter at his son. Because his son has killed his firstborn son, Amnon. And, of course, the son here has no repentance. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Now, she's wise, kind of like the fellow we read about last week, Jonadab. She's wise in a crafty way, a deceitful way. She's got street smarts. And so, and he said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So notice, this is important. Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, we don't know exactly what Joab's motivation was. Maybe he was just concerned about the stability of the kingdom. Absalom at this point would be the obvious heir after Amnon had been killed. And so maybe he's just concerned about the, the stability of the kingdom. And, 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 a, and a son who's in exile is not going to do anyone any good. Maybe that's the motivation. Whatever the motivation is, he uses deceit to bring things about. And maybe he remembers Nathan the prophet's fruitful use of a parable to convict David of adultery. And so he sends this wise woman from Tekoa, which is 10 miles away, to speak a parable to David, much like Nathan had done with David earlier. Notice verse 4. When the woman of Tekoa, by the way, Amos, the famous prophet, is from Tekoa. So this is the southern part of Israel. When the woman of Nicoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. Now, I found this line very encouraging this week. And here's why. Here you have a disingenuous woman coming to a very flawed king. And he hears her. He hears her. 
And the reason I find that encouraging is that I ask myself the question, how much more so those who sincerely come to the true and better king than David? When we cry out, save me, save me, O king. I found that encouraging. Yesterday was, or perhaps it was Friday, was Spurgeon's, Charles Spurgeon's 186th birthday. And one of my favorite quotes from the quotable Spurgeon is this, we never go to Christ too often. Isn't that a good word? We never go to Christ too often. Well, at this time in redemptive history, who is the Christ? Who is the anointed one? Well, it's David. And this woman is coming to David. Of course, she's not com completely sincere. Verse 5, And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My, my husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. So she's almost depicting it like it's another Cain and Abel. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the air also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And so the widow claims to have this family. And the wider family wanted the law applied to the son who had killed the other son. All right? They wanted him to die. But the widow says there were factors that needed to be considered in this situation that she wanted the king to hear. Now, again, Joab is the one who gave her this story. First of all, the murder wasn't premeditated. She said it just happened as they were getting into a fight. I'm trying to remind my sons of that, that this can happen. And the law, under the Old Covenant, makes a distinction between murder and manslaughter. They, they offered, the law offered cities of refuge for those who committed manslaughter. Second, she says... The family, the greater family here, the larger family, was not interested in justice. They wanted the inheritance. Notice she says they would destroy the heir also. They figured if you destroy the heir, then the whole family would, would, be, would receive the inheritance. Third, she is crying out to the king here for compassion. She needs compassion. They would quench my coal that is left. Coal being the only thing left that warms her heart, her, her surviving son. And then fourth, and this was very important in the ancient Near East, her dead husband would be left without a name. His name would not endure if his sons were all dead without families. Of course, this was intended to be a parable of David and Absalom. But there are inconsistencies and half-truths in this story. For instance, no one wanted Absalom killed as 
this family wanted the surviving son to be killed. But Joab here and this widow are not concerned with the facts. They are concerned with a stirring narrative that will have an effect on David. Do you think that is common today? Do you think that applies today? Let me just tell you, that is exactly... We talked about this briefly, and it really doesn't have a direct application here, but we need to be warned of this, and we're going to speak to this more in the future. That's exactly what critical race theory does. Critical race theory goes after the emotions without facts, all right? And it is creating chaos in our culture. It's creating chaos in our churches. Well, that's exactly what they're doing here. They're using deceit, and they're trying to appeal to the emotions without considering the facts of things. Well, notice in verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, Oh, on me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. Of course, the concern here is that the king may believe that it is wrong in allowing the son, in this case, to go unpunished. And she says, so may the guilt fall on me and on the family and not the king. Notice in verse 10, the king said, if anyone says to you, bring him to me and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God that the avenger of blood kill no more. And my son shall not be destroyed, be not destroyed. And he said, he's been, he's been captured by this, this story at this point. As the Lord Lear lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground and at this point she knows that she has him and that's when she sinks the hook notice in verse 12 then the woman said please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king he said speak and the woman said why then why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God for in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Virtue signaling will get you in trouble. She has, the, she has his, her hooks in him now. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. Verse 14, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And this is important. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. So in this story, Israel is depicted as the widow. And the two leading sons are Amnon, who's the one that was killed, and Absalom, who was the one behind his being killed. So Amnon is dead. And Absalom, if he was killed, if he was put to death, or permanently exiled, widow Israel in the story 
would be left with no one to carry on the family heritage. And so she makes a few points here that David is not completely grasping. First of all, David had planned, she says, such a thing against the people of God. He had done something similar. But in his case, it was against the people of God. It wasn't just against one family. Second, the decisions that David had made about her issue applied to his own situation. Notice, for in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. In other words, you're showing mercy to my son, but you're not showing mercy to your own son. Then notice, the king does not bring his banished one home again. And here we see that the misdirection of half-truth by which her story was so different from the truth-bearing story that Nathan spoke to David. When Nathan came to David, it was all truth. And the Lord used that to bring David's repentance. This is a bunch of half-truths and non-facts. This is a tale rooted in emotion, not facts. And she and Joab knew that Feelings don't care about facts. And I think that applies today. Feelings don't care about facts. So just keep manipulating the feelings. We have people falling into that trap today. But if David had his thinking cap on, he would have noticed crucial differences between the widow's parable And the situation with Absalom. In the widow's parable, the son accidentally killed the other son. In the real situation, the real facts of the situation, Absalom had premeditated a murder on Amnon. Secondly, we could say here, Notice it says, she says, we must all die. What she's saying there is nothing can bring the dead son back. Nothing can bring the dead son. So what good would it be to kill the other son? But all of the widow's craftiness here is summed up in this last part of verse 14. Now this is a beautiful text if we bring truth to it. But she's using it in a crafty way. Notice the last part of verse 14. God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, Absalom's Subsequent history that we're going to be reading about is going to show us that true peace cannot be built on amnesty. What is amnesty? It is pardon without penalty. That's amnesty. True peace cannot be built on amnesty. Only justice can produce true peace. And yes, notice, God has devised means 
so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. He has done that in a glorious way, but not in the way that this widow suggests where justice is compromised. What she was suggesting is that you you minimize the demands of justice at the expense of love. That's what she was saying to the king. So how does, and here's the question, how does God restore the alienated without compromising his justice? It's a question that the Old Testament is presenting that we recognize can only be resolved through the true king, the true Christ. Well, before we answer that question, we need to recall that David's kingship was in God's name. He represented God. So his kingship was in God's name. His kingship was subject to God's will, and it was designed to direct all things to God's honor. And hence, David's kingship was to be one of justice and righteousness and truth because his kingship points to the greater David, to the greater restoration that this king would achieve. And in light of God's saving work, Through the one in whom David points, Scripture sets forth three aspects of this restoration that's being compromised, at least potentially, by this woman and David's embrace of what she was saying. First of all, and foundationally, justification. What is justification? It's a term we use. It's a biblical term. It's an act of God's free grace. It's an act of grace whereby God pardons the sinner of his or her sin and accepts the sinner as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of the greater David, Jesus, which is imputed and credited to the believing, repentant sinner. So justification refers to our legal acceptance under God's law. We must be legally accepted before this just king, this just judge. And having sinned, like all of us, and like Absalom here, the penalty must be paid in order to appear in God's holy royal courts. Of course, his holy royal courts, his His justice and his righteousness was expressed through the Davidic king. But on the cross, after having fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law, God in Christ obeying the law as our substitute, Jesus Christ on the cross satisfied divine justice for those who would trust in the Lord. That's why Paul can say, Therefore, having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Romans 5.1. Now, Billy Graham used to say that justification means just if I never sinned. And And that is a true statement, but it's incomplete. Justification is more than that. It also means just if I had always obeyed. That's justification. So it's just if I never sinned, 
but it's also just if I had always obeyed. And so, in this way, God restores us through the son of David without compromising his perfect justice. This woman was wanting David to receive the son back at the expense of justice. A second aspect of our restoration is redemption, where we are set free from the bondage of sin. Its connection to justification is that Jesus redeems his people who no longer owe a debt to God's offended law. So you see how they're connected. This, This notion of redemption is connected to justification. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1 verse 7. Then the third aspect of this restoration is reconciliation. Now, let me just say this today. We're talking a lot about reconciliation in our culture. But what the proponents of this reconciliation are forgetting is the ground of what true reconciliation is. You cannot have reconciliation without the cross. You cannot have reconciliation without the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have reconciliation without the forgiveness of sins that come through Jesus Christ. In in many people's worldview today, reconciliation comes through reparations. Reconciliation comes through affirmative action making all things equal in outcome. Well, true reconciliation comes through the cross. And once a person comes through the cross, there is reconciliation. It's nothing that needs to be achieved. It's already been achieved. And so reconciliation, which was lacking here with Amnon or or David and Absalom, um, comes through the price that is paid. And so the, the greater son of David, and through him, the alienated sinner gains a comprehensive salvation that satisfies both the justice and the mercy of God and restores the bonds that were broken by sin. And this had been the means of David's restoration. Remember after he committed murder and, and adultery. What did he say in Psalm 51? We looked at this psalm a few weeks ago. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The hyssop plant was was what was used in dabbing the blood from the sacrifice. And they would sprinkle on the mercy seat the blood that had been sacrificed from the animal. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. David's sin had been forgiven through the substitute. Through the shedding of blood. But sadly and tragically here, there is no resemblance of any of this that we're going to see in Absalom's return. Notice in verse 15. Now, I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my 
Lord, the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. It's manipulation we see here. The Lord your God be with you. Now, before we read David's response, I want, you to, I want to ask you to do this. I want you to take note of any place where David hears her stirring tale and compares it to Scripture. All right? You're not going to see it. I want you to look for where he's going to pray for guidance as he responds to her half-truths. Where does he go to Nathan, the prophet, and seek counsel? You don't see any of that here. Because here's what the widow is doing. And this is so important in our understanding of the gospel. The widow is justifying the breaking of God's law for mercy's sake. What did Absalom deserve? He deserved death. And she is seeking to justify the breaking of God's law at the expense mercy. But here's the question. Does the Bible ever justify such a contradiction? No. And never. But we wouldn't know that by David's example. Notice in verse 18, then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. And the king said, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? He, he figures this, Joab had to be behind this. The woman answered and said, as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. That's behind the deceit. It was in order to change the course of things. Of course, if you do it at the compromise of justice and truth, what it changes is that it creates even more chaos. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this, but my Lord had wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And so we see here Joab's craftiness and Next, we're going to see David's compromise in light of that. Verse 21, then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go bring back the young man Absalom. So he's bringing back the, the offended son, but there's been no justice. There's been no repentance. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. Isn't that amazing? Bring him back, but he's not coming into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house did not come into the king's presence. And so David, for his part, now this is what happens when justice is compromised. David, for his part, couldn't bring himself to treat Absalom either as a murderer, therefore he did not execute him, or as innocent, and therefore he could not welcome him back. That is the situation when justice is compromised. Now let me 
speak here to an issue that I think may be confusing at this point. David's murder of Uriah, all right, demanded death. So why didn't David die? He didn't die because in that particular case, he was actually forgiven. And I think the same thing applies here. This is complex, but here, here's what I think is going on. Under the Old Covenant, the penalty for sins committed in a high-handed way. Now, what's a high-handed sin? It's premeditated. A premeditated sin where I'm going, to, I'm going to do this ahead of time. I've thought about it, and I've planned it. I've plotted it. I'm going to commit this sin. The, the wages of high-handed sins was death. There was no atoning sacrifice for high-handed sins under the Old Covenant. The sin and the guilt offerings could only atone for unintentional violations that didn't entail a breach of the covenant. That shows you the limitations of the, of the, the sacrificial system. And the people of God knew, under the Old Covenant, that the sacrifice of atonement opened a way of atonement in only a few cases. And for that reason, they repeatedly reached behind those sacrifices and appealed to mercy. Now, we know under the New Covenant that even that mercy came without justice being impugned. That mercy was shown, like in the case of David, because as Romans 3 tells us, God was planning to satisfy his divine justice in those cases in the Son of God. But the few sacrifices prescribed in the law didn't cover the whole of life. That was the limitations of the Old Covenant. They didn't bring about true atonement, in other words. They served only to arouse a sense of sin in the people, and they were types, that is, they were pictures that pointed forward to a better and more secure and final sacrifice. And that's how David, the adulterer, and David, the murderer, was forgiven. So by in humility... This broken sinner would, would, would look to God and he would look to the greater sacrifice though he deserved death. But there's no humility here with Absalom. There's no brokenness. And we see that in the final part of this passage. We've seen Joab's craftiness and, and David's compromise the final part of this passage, it's not going to go away, is Absalom's contempt. Notice in verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. He appeared to be perfect. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it when it was heavy on him, he cut it, and he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. I think that's a little over three pounds. Jewish scholar says that he would, he would sprinkle his hair with gold dust that would weigh it down. Maybe that was part of the weight. And so when he rode on a chariot, he looked like a god. He looked like a, an angel with, with, with gold dust in, in his flowing hair. 
Such was his, his pride and his arrogance. Verse 27, there were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. He had named one of his daughters, or named his daughter, after his sister Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. I love Matthew Henry's thoughts on this text. Here's what he says. Absalom was a very handsome man. He had a very fine head of hair. And he had several children. But nothing is said of his wisdom and his piety. Now we've all... We've already been reading about Absalom for about a chapter and a half without knowing this about him. We didn't know how good he looked, how impressive his outward appearance was. Why does, he, why does the writer put it here? Well, who does this remind you of? It reminds you of Saul. Absalom has the character of Saul. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, Saul was a handsome man. There was not a, a man among the people more handsome than Saul. He looked like a king, but he did not have a Torah heart. And the writer here is signaling that's the kind of man that David has raised. The writer here is inferring that David had raised his sons the way many dads raise their sons to find their identity in outward things, in superficial things, rather than in the fear of God. Absalom has no fear of God. And at this point, it has devastated the father-son relationship. Notice in verse 28. So Absalom lived two Full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. So imagine you have a son or daughter that has been out of town. You've kind of been angry at each other. And you send out an olive leaf and olive branch and your child comes back to Louisville. But your child comes back to Louisville and you don't see the child for two years. That's the situation. Justice has not been satisfied. You cannot have peace without true justice. Biblical justice. And that's the situation. And we can see how Absalom's return and his restoration fell short here. It was a restoration without justification. In other words, his legal status has not changed with David. David is the king. And his legal status with the king has not changed. You could say in an analogous way to how God would be disgraced if he accepted unrepentant, guilty sinners into his presence. David could not allow Absalom into his palace. And hence, two years without coming into the king's presence. And as a result, we're going to see this, his enmity and his bitterness and hostility directed against David will only grow. Again, this is analogous to unrepentant, alienated humankind 
who need forgiveness. They want the benefits of God, but they don't want to do it on God's terms. All right? Now, from David's angle, he serves as a poor Messiah here. And Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. He is the anointed one under the old covenant. He brought his alienated son home and yet leaves him in a state of disgrace. Remember, the the king is preparing us for the greater king. This is a poor picture of the greater king to come. A.W. Pink says, Nothing could possibly justify David in disregarding the divine law, which cried aloud for the avenging of Amnon. As chief magistrate, and that's what he is. He's not just the father here, he's the king. As the chief magistrate in Israel, David had set aside the divine law. You see that. Therefore, he must not be surprised if his wayward son now resorts to further lawlessness. You cannot have peace without justice. Verse 29. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Joab was very loyal to David. Then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine. He has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Often children who are not receiving the love and the attention of their fathers will metaphorically set a field on fire to get their attention. It happens all the time. Happens all the time. Dad loves his work more than he loves me. Dad loves his hobbies more than he loves me. Dad loves all these other endeavors. Look how much time he spends on them while neglecting me. And they will set the field on fire to get your attention. Verse 31. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house. And he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to to be there still. In other words, you brought me back to Jerusalem, but I haven't seen my father. Now therefore, let me go into the presence of the king. And if there is guilt in me, let... Him put me to death. And Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So it's been two years since Absalom has been back in Jerusalem. Five years since Absalom had killed Amnon. And seven years... Since Amnon had harmed Tamar. It's been around 10 years since David had committed adultery and murder. For 10 years, 
at this point, David's family and David's kingdom had been entangled in more chaos than David had ever faced from his external enemies. Let me just say this a moment. In a fallen world, there are oppressive people and at times in micro places, oppressive systems. But those are never the ultimate issue. My problem is not outside of me. My deeper problem is inside of me. It's the human heart. Now, God may use issues outside of me to expose the real problem inside of me. One of the false gospels preached in many churches today is liberation theology. In liberation theology, the problem is outside of us, and it's an oppressor group. So if the problem is outside of me, then the gospel is a completely different gospel. The gospel is take care of that oppressive group. All right? But we see here, we see here the problem is not David's surrounding enemies. The issue is David's heart and Absalom's heart. No one's heart had been changed. Yes, it says he kissed Absalom. But this is reconciliation without justice. We're going to see it immediately in chapter 15. This is not true peace. This is fake peace. Again, the problem with dad's heart had flowed down to his family. And like most dysfunctional families, these, these two people clearly never address what was behind the five years of silent treatment or the horrific acts that had led to this silence. But here, even here in the brokenness of the situation, the writer is pointing us to something better. Remember the whole point of Samuel, the whole point of the Old Testament is that problems are presented that can only be fixed and resolved by the one from David, the greater Messiah. And God, we know, never fails to deal with the reality of sin like David did. In fact, he draws us in. He has planned a way where he can draw us in, as David did with Absalom, while at the same time dealing with our sin in a just way. And it's going to come through this greater David, who did what David could never do. He acted as the substitute. If someone were to ask me, how do you present the gospel to people? A key word is substitution. It's hard to preach the gospel to someone without that word, substitution. This greater David did what David could not do. He came as a substitute. And here's what John Stott says, and I love this. We're going to close here. The concept of substitution lies at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is a man substituting himself for God. We've seen that today. We saw it last week with Absalom. We've seen it today with David. Compromising justice. 
While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. That's David. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's Jesus, the greater David. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone while God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. And on this Father's Day, may that be the song of our homes, fathers. May it be the message we preach to our families. May it be the message we model to our families and with our brothers and sisters in Christ's larger family, the local church. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace today. We thank you that we have a greater David whereby you could be just and justifier, whereby you could reconcile us to yourself through this greater David. And Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate our fathers today. Lord, I want to pray for every father here because I could venture to say every father here in some way feels that they've blown it and they have. But that reality in itself preaches to us the glory of the gospel because we have a father who's never blown it. We have a father who came to us in our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead of killing us as Absalom did Amnon, he died in our place that we might live. We thank you, Lord, that the forgiveness that comes through that gospel covers every believing father here today. And I pray that that gospel would fuel us to be better fathers, more committed to our children, more committed to our wives, more committed to our church family. Father, if there's any fathers here, our mothers or anyone else for that matter, that have never tasted and seen your goodness in that gospel, we pray today you would save them. We pray you would open their hearts to your love manifested in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.